Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. It says, and the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages, that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and be in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The king will order Daniel's accusers punished in verse 24. This same king will order Daniel's God honored in verses 25 through 28. For Daniel, that morning brought deliverance in verse 23. For his accusers, the morning brought judgment. And why was Daniel delivered? If you'll remember in verse 23 of this chapter, it says... Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and they commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him. Note, because he believed in his God. So how will the accusers of Daniel be punished? They're going to be thrown into the very same lion's den and they're going to be torn instantly apart. And so if any skeptic or critic is wondering, the only reason why Daniel survived is they weren't hungry or those lions were tame. Uh, not really. Darius then publishes an executive order. Everyone in his kingdom should, be, should show the proper respect and the appropriate reverence for Daniel's God. So why does the king issue the command in verse 24 and the decree in verses 25 through 26? He issues the command and the decree because of the misery that the enemies of the king and Daniel brought on the king and Daniel. The, the king really issues the command and the decree, not simply because of the damage that was done, but the miracle that he witnessed. And so the king really has two messages. 
One is to his servants in verse 24, and the other is to his subjects in verses 25 through 28. So it begins with the king's execution order. Look again in verse 24, it says, and the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel. They cast him into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones and pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. The picture you'll remember is an orifice at the top of a, of a hill and the side of a hill. And as the victims are dropped in, literally the lions pounce and tear them to pieces before they ever hit the ground. The same law that brought Daniel to the lion's den would bring the accusers to the place of punishment. And the first thing I want you to notice, again, is that Daniel was supernaturally preserved in the place of certain death, and Daniel's accusers are miserably destroyed in the very same place, and the obvious application is the, the events that will take place I believe in the not too distant future with the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, some of God's elect will be supernaturally preserved in a time of tribulation and those who exercise the role of accuser and persecutor are going to experience unimaginable, unbelievable punishment. In the end, there's going to be a faithful remnant who refuse to receive the mark of the beast and the worship of the beast. When we're finished with this chapter, when we go to chapter 7 and we make our way all the way to chapter 12, it's going to be an unfolding story of prophecy. And so, my friend Ron Rhodes writes in his little book, the wicked destiny they had planned for Daniel would become their own destiny, unquote. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something, that there is a time of persecution for the saints, but there's also a time of punishment for the accusers. And see, when you pause and you think about what you're reading right now, it makes perfect sense that you would ask the question, what does your enemy have planned for you? And whatever the answer to that question is, God's plan for your enemy is way worse. And so rather than focus on what your enemies may or may not do to you, you're given permission to love them, to pray for them, to minister to them. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the execution of an entire family for the, the crimes of one person was common among the ancient Babylonians and the Persians. Darius orders the men, their wives, their children cast into the den, and the king obviously does not want anyone left alive who might foment division or rebellion or further manipulate his royal majesty. This causes some great concern among certain people. 
Did Persian law reflect God's law or even God's heart for justice? Not always. Because if you're wondering how does Daniel feel about what has happened to his accusers and their families, the text doesn't tell us. But I'm going to suggest to you that just like the Lord, he takes no pleasure or delight in the death of the wicked. You have to understand something, because as you read this, some of you might be thinking, well, does God applaud what just happened? And the right answer is no. Just like the Bible records the events of certain bad decisions that people make and the consequences of those bad decisions, because we know that Persian law and Jewish law were profoundly different. Jewish law forbade the killing of family members for crimes of parents. You'll remember in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. Again, Deuteronomy 24, 16. In Ezekiel chapter 18, it says this in verse 20, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him, unquote. But make no mistake about it. We live in a world where moms and dads can make sinful choices and their children suffer the consequences in many ways. In Hosea chapter 8 verse 7 it says, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Again, Warren Wiersbe says, quote, how tragic that their innocent children had to suffer, however such are the awful penalties of sin. We believe that the children under the age of accountability went to be with the Lord. God always vindicates his own. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. He quotes Proverbs chapter 11 verse 8. But again, it should prompt yet another question. What do you believe about punishment? Do you believe what the Bible says about punishment? The atheist Nietzsche famously said, quote, distrust all in which the impulse to punish is powerful. In that quote, Nietzsche is in effect saying, don't trust God and don't trust what the Bible says about punishment. Nietzsche hated God. He hated the God who would punish human beings for their sin and rebellion. And again, we live in a world where people will basically embrace the same sentiment. They hate a God who's going to hold them accountable for who they are and what they've done. 
The first mention of punishment takes place in the Garden of Eden. Most of you are familiar with the story. It's in Genesis chapter 3, in verses 1 through 24. Adam and Eve are set in a garden. They're given instruction about what to do and what not to do. They disobey God, and God does not allow sin to go unchecked or unpunished. And if the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin seem extreme, remember that their sin sets in motion all human rebellion. And every human being, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is born with a sinful nature, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. In the Old Testament, David writes that he was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. Adam and Eve's punishment gives us our first glimpse at exactly how God sees the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin. And in principle, we see punishment as a consequence of sin. Punishment is inevitable. Again, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. But punishment also can sometimes Refine the character. The psalmist cries in, in Psalm 38, verse 1, O Lord, don't punish me while, you're, while you are angry. In Genesis 9, 6, it says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So the Lord inaugurates, if you will, government, order, law, and punishment. It makes sense that we punish people for what they do. But sometimes the Lord punishes us because of what we are. But make no mistake about it. The Bible says that he hasn't rewarded you according to your sin or punished you according to your iniquity. That you have a God who is full of grace and full of mercy, who's willing to distance you. Not necessarily and always from the consequences, but from the ultimate punishment for sin. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, we read these almost terrifying words. The Lord says in Numbers 32, 23, if you do not keep your promise, I warn you that you will be sinning against the Lord. Make no mistake about it. You will be punished for your sin. And there's the rub because we live in a world where we think that we won't. The Bible says, be sure that your sin will find you out. Many people don't believe that God will punish sin. But one of the most important historical realities is that the punishment for sin has been made manifest in the life and the death and the cross of Calvary and, and the death of Jesus. If you're wondering exactly what God thinks about, feels about, and is going to deal with the problem of sin, the cross of Calvary becomes the picture. And so this is why the Bible says that the gospel is such good news. 
the most important good news is that God in his grace and his mercy has punished Jesus for our sin. So that if we will love him and trust him and accept him, we can experience salvation. We want sometimes God to punish people based on what they do. We want God to punish us based on what we meant. You laugh because all of a sudden you say, it's true, isn't it? We look at what other people have done and we say, Lord, punish them. And then we come to grips with what we've done and we say, Lord, you know what I meant. You know my heart. You know I didn't really mean it. Imagine what happens when people, saved and unsaved alike, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul writes, those or these who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, these who don't obey will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the question becomes, how do we obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? We do what the Bible says. We believe him. We acknowledge our sin. We trust Jesus as our savior. <clears throat> we accept and embrace what Jesus has done for us. Oswald Chambers wrote, quote, I am not judged by the light I have, but by the light I've refused to accept. And so for each and every person who's listening to this message, they should be able to say, you shouldn't have told me. Too late. It's too late, isn't it? You know. Some people will then come to me and they'll ask me the question, well, what about the person who never hears? Again, Oswald Chambers, I am not judged by the light I have, but by the light I have refused to accept. And what has the light given in a world? We're living in a world of darkness, but the sun comes up and reveals a creation in our heart. The moment we have ever accused anyone of anything, if you've ever accused someone of cheating or lying or stealing, it's a revelation that there's something inside of you that knows that lying and cheating and stealing is wrong. Or if you've ever been injured, then you know that injuring others is wrong. God has placed within our heart a conscience. George MacDonald writes, quote, No man is condemned for anything he has done. He is condemned for continuing to do wrong. He's condemned for not coming out of the darkness, for not coming to the light. And now we begin to understand what the writers in the New Testament mean when they talk about that we have left darkness and we've come into the light. We've received Christ as our Savior. We've acknowledged our sin and then trust Jesus for salvation. And so again, when you look at the king's executive order in verses 25 through 28, it is an earthly king, a Gentile king, who has overwhelmingly been influenced by the testimony of Daniel. Look what it says in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, so he inscribes this edict, 
to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. In the Aramaic, the word earth there is a word that can mean land. So it, it, it isn't just a, a, a statement about the globe or every human being who lives on the globe. He's talking about to all of the people, the people groups and the languages within the sphere of his influence and that are going to be able to read what he's saying. He says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. By the way, in that statement from Daniel chapter 7 all the way till the end of the book, it's going to be in a very real sense the testimony that Daniel is going to bring concerning these things that will ultimately unfold. And in verse 27 it says, He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. That last sentence in verse 28 can be translated the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus. Now that's very similar to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26. Paul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. So kings in the ancient Near East often had more than one throne name, if you will. And here, the Persian king, since Cyrus took over the Median Empire, had a Median mother, he could also be called both a Mede and a Persian. His mother was from Media, and his father was Persian. So the executive order to all the king's subjects is no exception. That's the first point. He addresses everyone. And he says, I want everyone to know, no exceptions. Now think about this, because you might think it disingenuous. He expresses the desire for peace. You might think, wait a minute, you just threw everybody into the lion's den. Their wives and their children, they're pretty much dead. So for this king, does death, does, does peace mean all of my enemies are gone? I'm going to suggest to you there that it really is a message of peace in this sense, just like in the New Testament. So far as it's possible, live at peace with all people. This king was manipulated into a position where he put an innocent person in harm's way. And so the executive order, again, is addressed to all people. It's a call for peace. The king calls on his subjects to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. The fear that they're talking about, is this the kind of terrifying fear of falling into the hands of a just God who is going to re render a judicial pronouncement of guilt? I think that there might be an element of that. That there is an element of that. And that disturbs people. 
they get disturbed when someone in a position of authority is also given the ability to exercise a judgment. But the reoccurring theme in the Bible is that there will be a judgment and that a God will call us into account for who we are and what we've done. This king says, why should you do this? The king points out because he's alive and secure and eternal. He is invincible. His kingdom is without measure or end. Because in verse 27, he's suggesting who but the living God, who but an eternal God, who but a living and an eternal God could have preserved Daniel in that den. So King Darius, I want you to just pause for a minute and reflect at what you've read in this chapter because there was a point in the chapter where the king didn't have the power to save Daniel from the lion's den. But God did. God did have the power. And again, it should remind us of all of the things that we come to trust in. Well, certainly my mom or my dad's going to bail me out. Certainly my brother or my sister's going to bail me out. Certainly the government's going to bail me out. Certainly someone is going to come to my rescue in my time of need and in my time of trouble. And make no mistake about it, a, a, a people that reject God will typically try to replace God. You know, for the people who reject God, they almost invariably will put their trust in something or someone else and then assign to it the attributes of God. And so King Darius didn't have the power to save Daniel, but God did have the power to save Daniel. The king testifies that he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Remember, a sign in the Bible is something that points you in a particular direction, and a wonder is a miracle that so captures your attention that you are left with the impression that God had to intervene in order for this to happen. Well, does this mean that the king converted? that he changed his belief from the pagan gods of Persia and that he came to trust in Daniel's God? Not necessarily. Confession doesn't always mean conversion. And so, what is obvious is that what Daniel believed about God and what God did for Daniel left a lasting impression on this Gentile king. So again, we visit the question, what was the purpose of God for Daniel? What was God's purpose for Daniel? I'm gonna remind you of something. Daniel was everything that God hoped that the nation of Israel would be. The Lord had hoped that Israel would be a nation that would separate itself from sin and then consecrate itself to the Lord. Think just in those just very simple terms. The Lord is calling on Israel 
Separate yourself from sin. Consecrate yourself to me. Be a light. Be a testimony. Reveal to the world what kind of a God I am and what kind of a God is willing to love you and save you and redeem you and rescue you and reconcile you. Daniel is going to serve as a witness to the Gentiles. Daniel is going to do individually what the whole nation was supposed to do. To cause the Gentiles to ask the question, what kind of a God is Daniel's God? And in a very real sense, it becomes the seminal purpose of your life. Because whether you have an unbelieving husband, a wife, a father, a brother, a sister, everybody who's out there, everybody who watches you, it, because if you've ever prayed and wondered, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What, what's God using me for? What am I supposed to be doing? Whether you like it or not, you're serving the purposes of God. Because every unbeliever who's watching you is wondering whether or not the Bible is true. They're wondering whether or not Jesus is the Lord. They're wondering whether or not God saves people and forgives people and reconciles them to himself. God raised up Daniel and his friends to serve as a powerful testimony to God's plans and purposes in the world. And that's exactly what he's done for you. In Christ Jesus the Lord. Daniel is to serve as a witness to the Gentiles. Daniel is supposed to cause the Gentiles to ask all of those kinds of questions. And remember what I said. Israel had fallen into gross idolatry and disobedience. Is it possible that sometimes people in the church misrepresent what kind of a God is God? Now you're, many of you are shaking your head because you've seen it. You've seen it. You go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My reading of the Bible is that this is the kind of God that the Bible represents as the kind of God who actually exists. If I were to put it in a single sentence, what can we learn about our own purpose? from Daniel's purpose. Daniel exists to, to glorify God. What Daniel has done serves as a testimony to a watching world. What does this say about our purpose? We're to be everything that Jesus hoped for. We're to be everything that Jesus hoped for. And what pray tell is that? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 7, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. Paul says, I'm not asking you to follow me. What I'm asking you to do is follow me like I follow Jesus. And later, in everything, set an example. How? By de doing what's good. And so almost invariably, everything that we do is going to largely fall into one of two categories. Is this good? Or is this bad? Is this right or is this wrong? 
I loved my grandma and I miss her every single day. She used to say, a pint of example is worth a gallon of advice. That's the world you grew up in. A pint of example is worth a gallon of advice. A good example is the best sermon. And there is no greater example of love and humility than Jesus. There is no greater example of sacrifice and reward than the cross of Calvary where once again you see the worst thing that could possibly happen become the best thing that could possibly happen as people are able to be saved from their sin and reconciled to the Father. The order provides us with, again, at least some understanding of Daniel's ordeal. Because remember, you are asking the question, why did God, why did God, why did God allow Daniel to go into that horrible trial? And why does God allow me to go into my horrible trial? Because the way God manifests his glory in that trial is going to serve as an example to a watching world and your trial. Your trial is being watched. Not simply by angels and demons. It's being watched by your husband and your wife, your children, your neighbors, your family, your friend. Each and every one is looking at you and they're asking the question, I'm wondering if the God that they talk about and the God that they pray to and the God that they love and they say has saved them and reconciled them and redeemed them and changed them, I wonder if it's really true. The answer in the broadest terms possible. God is allowing Daniel in the lion's den to promote his glory. And in broadest terms possible, God's allowing you to go what God is allowing you to go through. Ultimately, inevitably, to bring him glory. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, we're, we're given a glimpse into the sometimes secret and invisible world of private struggle and suffering. And Peter addresses the issue of godly living in the home and in the church. He cites Psalm 34, verses 12 through 15, where it says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn from from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, unquote. So Peter asks the question facing women in an abusive relationship. Who is it who can harm you if you become a follower of what is good in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13? And the right answer, the right answer has to be, as the woman is experiencing horror and pain and abuse, the right answer has to be, well, he could hurt me. He could hurt me. 
Peter says something that's so remarkable as to be unbelievable. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threat. Do not be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Enemies can hurt us, but not ultimately, and not finally, and not eternally. People can temporarily trouble us, cause us discomfort. And you might be thinking, well, you know, abuse is a much stronger word, but in the end, in the end, when we think about Jesus' suffering, when we think about the threats that he received, and when we think about the suffering that he experienced, now all of a sudden we begin to understand what the New Testament says, that if you love him, you identify with him. And you don't just identify him with him in all of the good things, you identify with him and even in the difficult things. So what does this have to do with our study in Daniel? The whole point becomes, Daniel overcomes the trial and the testing and the temptation. And when we overcome the trial and the testing and the temptation, we get to glorify the Lord. And the demons are still watching. And the angels are still watching. And your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors and your friends and the world in which you live is still watching. Because sometimes our trial becomes someone else's freedom and our miracle becomes someone else's hope. James Hudson Taylor, the missionary, said, quote, We are not only to renounce evil, but to manifest the truth. We tell people that the world is vain. Let our lives manifest that it is so. We tell them that our home is above and that all these things are transitory. Does our dwelling look like it? Oh, to live consistent lives, Taylor says. Oh, to live consistent lives. Oh, would to God we would actually live the way that the Bible says. And encourages, exhorts. Countless God-honoring Jews in captivity are going to experience a brief respite from persecution. Why? Because of the witness and the testimony of Daniel. Because Daniel's witness and Daniel's testimony, the king is going to make it a law that you can't molest and punish Jews. And you actually never understand just how important that law is until you become the object of molestation and punishment. Persecution and molestation is gonna be briefly halted. The king says, do you worship the God of Abraham? Do you worship the God of Moses? Do you worship the God of David? Do you worship the God of Daniel? 
And if the answer is yes, guess what? You now are free to exercise your deeply held convictions. And by the way, the synagogue system is going to take root in this place of captivity. A group of leaders are going to call themselves Padashim. We are the ones who are the separated ones. They're going to come into the New Testament and they're going to be called Pharisees. The Pharisees are the people who make the commitment. We want to, we want to separate ourselves from sin and we want to honor God. Is separating yourself from sin and honoring God a good thing? Yes. Can you separate yourself from sin and make an attempt to honor God, but all the while your separation from sin then devolves into a kind of self-righteous hypocrisy and inconsistency? That's eventually what's going to happen. But the Pharisees didn't start out that way. They started out in captivity because one person decided that they were going to do what's right. And the Jewish people in captivity reap the reward. It's going to be briefly halted. It's not going to last forever. In the book of Esther, hatred for the Jews is going to reemerge with a kind of a genocidal fervor. And Daniel, by the way, is going to eventually die. He's going to enter into his reward. Daniel is going to die and he's going to enter into his reward, but it isn't, he's not going to die in the lion's den. He's not going to be dead at the end of chapter 6. His powerful testimony and his powerful prophecies have yet to be recorded and they're going to need to be recorded for time and posterity. And so from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 12, the prophecies are going to unfold. The man or the woman of God, in the will of God, and the word of God is immortal until his or her work is done. And Daniel was such a man. God is going to preserve him in order to finish his plan. And part of God's plan is for Daniel to record the revelations that are taking place so that we will be able to understand the course of history. Thank God Daniel is alive at the end of chapter 6 because this means you and I get to study chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. It may not mean a whole lot to you, but it means the world to me. The content, prophetic, apocalyptic. It's very much like the book of Ezekiel. It's going to use highly symbolic language to describe the unfolding of Gentile kingdoms, the rise of persecution, and the coming of the Messiah. And the visions are going to be given in chronological order. We're going to see a vision of four beasts representing four empires, Babylon, a lion, Medo-Persia, a bear, Greece, a leopard, Rome, a terrifying beast. And the last is destroyed as one like the son of 
of man is given universal authority by the ancient of days in chapter 7. And as you fast forward and you come all the way to the end of the book in chapter 12, the end of time, Daniel is going to be promised a future resurrection. Daniel's going to die. But he's going to come back to life. Most of us are going to die. I say most of us because I do live in the constant hope that Jesus could come back at any moment. Most of us are going to die. And like Daniel, we too have been promised a resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Our adventure with Daniel isn't over. Daniel's going to give further testimony. Daniel's going to give us a little more insight about prophecy. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to invite you to join me on the adventure. There's an old hymn by P.B. Bliss. He wrote, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Daniel doesn't just simply survive the lion's den. He's going to survive the, the lion's den and God is going to remind him of the prophecies that have been given to him, the revelations and the visions that have been unfolded to him so that we would have a better understanding what the future holds for us. Isn't that exciting? So, are you with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we could be a Daniel. Lord, we do pray that even if that means standing against the tide, going against the grain, going against the flow, Lord, we pray that, that you would give us courage to stand. Lord, we pray that we would have courage and resolve as we once again remind ourselves that what the Bible says about the sinful human condition is true. And what the Bible says about the solution remains true. Jesus remains the only solution to the problem of sin. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person that they will have come into a right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that they have prayed that simple prayer that they know that they're a sinner, that they want to turn from their sin, that they want to embrace Jesus as their Savior, that they would invite Jesus not only to wash them and cleanse them and reconcile them to the Father, but change their heart so that we could better honor God and glorify Him in the purpose assigned to us and that, Lord, we would do what is so very difficult for so many, tell people the truth about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.